because we're so firmly entrenched in the information age where verified or unverified news is shared across social media platforms almost every minute of the day by professional journalists, internet journalists, your teacher, your doctor, your dentist, your sports buddies, your gaming friends, your pastor, your barber, your sibling, and even your mom and dad. It has led to the proliferation of fake news, misinformation, and falsehoods. We used to believe that generally news that is true comes from journalists who can be trusted because they did their research and double-checked and triple-checked their sources with multiple editors that provided accountability and ensured journalistic independence and accuracy. But now most people believe, rightly or wrongly, that those who report news can't be trusted because they have a bias and because the so-called mainstream media can't be trusted because of their agenda so we have to turn to alternative news sources and to people whom we admire as bold and brave enough to go against conventional wisdom to expose the truth, forgetting that even they often have bias and an agenda. Instead of simply reporting the news as the quote-unquote boring truth as journalists should, we are where we are today with almost all news biased in some way because of what happened more than a hundred years ago. According to a Harvard Business Review article written by Peter Vanderwicken, this development of the news not being the truth started more than a century ago. The architect of the transformation was not a political leader, but Joseph Pulitzer, who in 1883 bought the sleepy New York World newspaper and in 20 years made it the U.S.'s largest newspaper. Pulitzer accomplished this by bringing drama to news by turning news articles into stories with a plot, actors in conflict, and colorful details. In the late 19th century, most newspaper accounts of news were couched in institutional formats, much like the minutes of a board meeting, and really boring to read. But it was presented as actual facts. Pulitzer turned the news into stories with a sharp, dramatic focus that both implied and aroused intense public interest. Most newspaper at that time looked boring and unattractive. Pulitzer made stories dramatic by adding blaring headlines, big pictures, and eye-catching graphics. His journalism took events out of their dry institutional context and made them emotional rather than rational, immediate rather than considered, and sensational rather than informative. Let me repeat that again. Listen carefully. Information became emotional rather than rational, immediate rather than considered, and sensational rather than informative. The press became a stage on which the news were a series of dramas, and Pulitzer's journalism has become a model for the multi-stage theater of today's journalism. The rise of television and the internet has increased the demand for drama in news, and the explosion of lobbyist and self-interest groups has expanded the number of actors and the range of conflicts. And sadly, we have seen this to be true, where instead of reporting just the news without commentary or just the news on its facts, we now have everything colored where media outlets are characterized by their biased leanings. Leans left, left, center, leans right, they are on the right. Whether you realize it or not, you and I have been affected by media bias on a whole wide range of subject matters. So how do we discern and know the truth? 
Let's remember that bias is not only confined to the media world. Because of sin, we also don't tell the straight-up, quote-unquote, boring truth. We have our own agenda and bias, and we flex on the truth, which is then often a lie, as we talked about in the first sermon in this series. Of course, everything is colored if there is bias involved. For example, if you don't like a certain individual, he or she can do no right in your eyes, even if that person has done some admirable things. Or if you like someone or admire them, he or she can do no wrong in your eyes, even if it's obvious to everyone else that he or she did wrong. If you don't like the current administration, then they can do no right in your eyes, even if they've done some great things. If you support the current administration, then they can do no wrong and are much better than the previous administrations, even if they've made mistakes. This is the power of bias. It's like what we talked about last week. If you tell people who believe that the Illuminati is taking over the world, and you tell them that the Illuminati does not hold the influence that is being ascribed to them, and even show them that people who are accused of being part of the Illuminati have themselves denied that they are a part of it, instead of accepting it to be true, they will respond. It's exactly what people in the Illuminati will say. They will deny their participation. Or for example, if you disagree with the medical advice, you will say that those doctors who advocate for what is commonly accepted are being paid off by the big pharmaceutical companies. It is a losing battle at times to try to convince those whose perception and impressions are set because of bias. This is the power of bias in shaping our perception of what is right and what is wrong. And unfortunately, it also has spiritual implications. If you hold to God's Word as being inerrant and inspired by God, then you will hold it as having authority in your life. And you will see that those so-called contradictions and errors that the critics say are in the Bible are easily explained. But if you don't hold to the Bible as God's Word and you doubt its veracity, then you will try to exaggerate its supposed contradictions and you will see error in everything it says, even so far as to say that the Bible is irrelevant because it is so outdated in its cultural application. People who have a sinister agenda or evil motives will often tap into this bias because they know how powerful it is and use propaganda to capture your mind and turn your hearts to their side, their advocacy, their cause, and their lies. Sadly, lies and misinformation suddenly become true because the packaging of these lies are so nicely presented. This is a world today that measures truth not on what is factually true, but on what you and the people of influence around you want to be true. Truth has now become subjective and is measured on its appeal. Truth is now emotional rather than rational, immediate rather than considered, and sensational rather than informative. The appearance, packaging, and appeal of truth is now the basis for belief, not necessarily on the truth itself. It's all about the packaging and what appears acceptable to the majority that is truth. Does the Bible say anything about this sad state of truth corruption? Yes, it does. Remember what the Bible warns us of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will be turned aside to fables. Lies packaged as truth will win over the hearts and minds of men and women as we get closer to the coming of Christ. And so, as we continue our sermon series, Searching for Truth, it is important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to filter and to discern truth in a confusing world, a world where we have access to so much information and are bombarded with everyone claiming to speak the truth. And so, in a world where lies are packaged as appealing truth, we want to be warned of how the world packages lies into truth from one who successfully did it. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15, as we take a look at a man named Absalom and how he was able to overthrow his father, the beloved King David, in a carefully planned coup. From our study of these verses, we want to draw out some biblical principles warning us of what we are to look out for when people try to present lies and falsehoods neatly and convincingly packaged as truth or reality. Hopefully, this will help us wisely discern information that we come across that is often biased and has an underlying agenda and propaganda. Now, as you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 15, by way of background for those of you who are not familiar with this man, Absalom was a son of King David born to Maaka, the daughter of the king of Geshur. In the preceding chapters, we're told that Absalom murdered his half-brother Amnon, because of what he did to Absalom's sister. And Absalom was forced to flee to Geshur to the house of his grandfather and lived there for three years. King David greatly missed his son Absalom, and through the intervention of his advisor Joab, had Absalom brought back home to Jerusalem to be with his family, but King David would not see his son. And after two years of living in Jerusalem, David eventually forgave his son Absalom and they met and were reconciled. But for reasons that are not mentioned in the Bible, perhaps Absalom was angry at his father, or he was simply power-hungry and wanted to be king, Absalom schemed to overthrow his father David. It would be difficult as David was a powerful and beloved king of united Israel. But this master manipulator of people will illustrate how he was able to win the hearts of the people to favor him and turn against beloved King David. Now, let's take a look at what happened and draw out some biblical principles to help us cut through bias and propaganda to discern the real truth. I'll read now from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom knew what the people wanted, and the people wanted a show, a spectacle, He knew that he needed to draw attention to himself, to reimagine his image from the king's son who has killed his half-brother and has been gone from the royal courts for more than five years, to a prince who was very kingly, someone who could very much look the part of a leader, specifically as a king. So he basically hired himself an entourage and always traveled in a posse or in a large group. And what this looked like in his time was that he rode around in a horse and chariot, surrounded by 50 men who always ran in front of him. Think about the commotion and the scene 
he would attract whenever he went to this or that a place. Further, if we go back one chapter to chapter 14, we read in verses 25 to 27 this description of Absalom and his family. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. The Bible tells us that Absalom was very good-looking. Someone we would say today as being very photogenic or telegenic, pleasing to the eyes. His skin was flawless, but not just his face. From head to toe, his skin was flawless. He could easily get a job today as a top male model at Bello or a fashion or cosmetic store or even sell dermatological products. His hair was described as thick and full. He could star in shampoo commercials today. And you can just imagine how that hair would be whipped around elegantly as he rode in that horse-drawn chariot, looking very regal, stately, and kingly. And he had a family of three boys and a daughter, and they were all presumably very good-looking, with his daughter getting special mention in the Bible as being very beautiful. As people saw it, he had the perfect family. So Absalom milked his physical good looks, hired himself an entourage, and traveled in a large group to market himself and rebrand himself, not as a scheming murderer, but as one who was regal and kingly. As we will find out later, Absalom was driven by power and passion and not with a heart to follow God's leading. My friends, this should serve as a warning to all of us that it's very easy to rebrand and repackage lies and falsehoods as truth through the use of what we call smokescreens or diversions. Smokescreens and diversions are when falsehoods and false motives are often masked behind so-called bells and whistles, sound and lights, and other techniques that draw your attention from the lie or character flaw to focus on something else, the outward, the physical, the superficial. You see, warning number one in the packaging of truth Realize that diversions are often used to draw our attention away from the internal flaws to focus on the superficial virtues. Realize that diversions are often used today to draw our attention away from the internal flaws to focus us on the superficial virtues. We are susceptible to this because the world, even Christians, naturally pay attention and focus only on the outward, not looking at the inward. Remember God's warning to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Knowing that man often only looks at the outward appearance, the lies that Satan and the world propagates is masked through outward diversions so that you only focus on the positive aspects of a sinful lifestyle 
and not on the negative aspects or its consequences. You see, the world deceives us and says, enjoy life and live life to its fullest because you deserve it. You deserve what makes you happy. Sleep around with multiple partners if you like, if it makes you happy. Steal, have a side hustle going. Cheat to get ahead. Just be happy. Do whatever makes you happy. And the culture and the media hypes and promotes these types of people who are living the sinful lifestyle, the so-called lifestyles of the rich and famous, who in their sinfulness seem to be happy and have all of it. What is not focused on is the consequences of a sinful lifestyle, the broken relationships, the families that are destroyed, the sexually transmitted diseases, the drug use, the jail time for those who are caught, the reputations that are shattered, those who are killed because they owe a huge debt to syndicates, or those who now live in poverty looking for handouts when they have finally spent all of their money. And sadly for many who embrace this lifestyle, the outlook for eternity is no better. It is an outlook of eternity in hell because those having fun are often not thinking about spiritual matters which they should have been concerned with. But the world doesn't allow us to dwell on those things, but instead diverts our eyes to look at the glitz and the glamour, the fame and the fortune, never dwelling on the dark side. In the world of social media, with so much information and videos trying to vie for our attention, what catches our attention is catchy titles and things that are marketed to our sinful desires. These are what we call clickbaits, links with attractive titles, links with the promise of juicy gossip, breaking news on your favorite actor or actresses or singers, sensual pictures, suggestive videos, attention-grabbing graphics that will entice you and lure you into clicking that link to take you to their website where they propagate lies and falsehoods, often for their own monetary enrichment. Perhaps some of you have been baited into clicking on catchy videos or article links with titles such as, The Secrets the Church Doesn't Want You to Know, The Great Conspiracy That the Government is Hiding, The New World Order is Here, Click to Find Out How, or Watch Now or It Will Be Taken Down Soon. In fact, nowadays, the packaging is such that these articles and videos spreading disinformation looks professionally done which carries with it a certain level of credibility. So with the diversionary tactic set, we are drawn away from asking the tough questions such as, are what these people saying actually making sense or logical or supported by research facts and uh, established truth? But instead, of course, we focus on the superficial virtues such as it looks good. So back to our story, Absalom says, don't focus on me being a murderer with serious character flaws and deadly political ambitions. Focus on how handsome and kingly I look. Let's see what else he does. I read now verses 2 to 3. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit come to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, 
but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Absalom, the master manipulator, trying to win the hearts of the people, would station himself on the main road with his large entourage and intercept all those who had come to Jerusalem to seek an audience with King David to help them solve their problems and complaints. He pretends to be their friend, asking where they came from. By doing this, Absalom was connecting with them on a personal level. Imagine this good-looking prince of Israel looking very important with his entourage, would even care to know what tribe I'm from. Absalom would even try to show sympathy and empathy by asking what their complaint or issue was, and he would always say that their cause or their complaint was good, valid, and even right. Often when you have a complaint and a problem and you feel like no one is going to listen to you and empathize with you, if there is someone there to validate what you are feeling, and seem to care for you, then you will connect with them and see them as a friend. Many of these people going to Jerusalem to seek the advice and the decision of King David were people who probably felt very alone. Their local councils couldn't help them. Their disputes and their problems could not be handled at the local or tribal level. And so they were appealing to the king. They were fearful that their problem may not be handled. And here they met Absalom, who was very caring and who seemed to be their friend. How wonderful they feel to be validated and to have their fears assuaged. As we mentioned last week, one of the things that drives people to conspiracies is because of fear. And in that fear, they find a cause and a community, meaning they find people who think like them and understand them. That's why so many latch onto vaccine misinformation and conspiracies, because they are afraid. They don't understand how vaccines work. They don't understand the science behind it. The development of the COVID-19 vaccine seems for them to be very rushed, so they gravitate to people who understand their fears and cautions. Gordon Pennycook, professor of behavioral science at the University of Virginia, said that there are idiosyncratic motivational factors that may lead people to engage with misinformation such as wanting to find an explanation for them being sick or for their child being sick, for example. Fear and anxiety can contribute to susceptibility. And sadly, some people tap into our insecurities, fears, and need for validation, not to help us, but to take advantage of us in our vulnerabilities. Because unfortunately, not everyone has pure motives. Sometimes they have ulterior motives to steer you into their camp, or to sell you their things and their ideas, and to make money off of you. And you engage them, you buy things from them, you buy into what they're selling because you are vulnerable, fearful, in need of validation, and you feel they understand you. There are some people who reject vaccines, not because of valid medical reasons or ethical concerns, but because they simply don't understand the science of vaccines but they are the very same people who fully accept other quasi-medical treatment options without needing to fully understand the science behind the other option. So what's the difference? Where in both cases, they don't understand what's going on, but they trust and believe one, but not the other. The difference is that they are made to believe that one cares for them and the other does not. That's why we as Christians need to show deep love care and concern to all the people around us. 
when people are going through difficult times and they don't understand and comprehend what is happening to them, they're simply looking for people who will sympathize and validate what they're going through and their feelings. Many will offer various faith and spiritual options from various religions. Even if they don't understand all of it, they will often believe or be drawn to the faith option of the people who they believe truly cares for them. So then, when we show Christ's love to them, it should not be for any ulterior personal selfish motives other than we love them and we want to care for them and show them where they can find the help and solution to their life's problems, which is in turning to Jesus Christ. Now look what else Absalom does. I read now verse 4. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. Here, Absalom insinuated that King David didn't care for the people, that he didn't even care enough to appoint someone to listen to their complaints and their concerns. But if he, Absalom, were to be made chief judge, he would hear all of their cases and he would give them justice. He would give them what they wanted. He would give them justice, the justice that they believe they deserve. But just stop and think, if you weren't already so enamored with the eloquent words of Absalom, could he really fulfill his promise? Could he really give the people all that they wanted? He sounds very much like a politician here, promising to give the people all that they wanted. But we know this to be an impossibility. Let's say, for example, he was the chief judge of Israel, and two people with a personal dispute from, let's say, the tribe of Ishakar came for Absalom to adjudicate their problem. For sure, whatever his decision, one will walk away happy and one will walk away unhappy. There is no way a judge can make everyone happy. There is no way that a judge can make everyone feel that they have received justice. Even if he was king, he could not wish that everyone's complaint and problems would go away and that their wishes would come true. This is a politician speaking, promising what he cannot keep. But of course, no one is making these logical conclusions about this man and seeing through his empty promises because he seems so kind and looks so kingly, someone who speaks with such eloquence and compassion, someone who understands them, someone who is their friend. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Look at how down to earth he acted in relation to the people. He would kiss everyone who came to bow down to him as if to get to their level and say, you know, we're no different. And with that validation and affirmation for all those who came to seek David but instead interacted with Absalom, they would walk away thinking how wonderful Absalom was and share with all of their friends and family how great this Absalom is. They would go back home and naturally tell their friends and family, if only Absalom was our king, he would rule us with compassion. He would make the decisions our nation needed to help me deal with my problems and my complaints. 
And in this way, the Bible noted that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Oh, how people's hearts are so easily stolen, manipulated, and swayed. This should serve as a warning for us. Warning number two in the packaging of truth. Understand that not everyone who pretends to be your friend validates your feelings or empathetically affirms your concerns has your best interest at heart. Understand that not everyone who pretends to be your friend validates your feelings or empathetically affirms your concerns has your best interest at heart. Absalom has done all of these things not because he is caring and concerned for the people. He does all of these with an agenda to be the king of Israel. My friends, wake up and realize that our eyes are often blinded when people befriend us, validate our feelings, and show great empathy both online and face-to-face. Again, we should be warned. I'm not saying we should think ill of everyone who is kind to us. I'm simply suggesting we shouldn't be so naive and trusting, but to use wisdom and discernment. I've heard of so many stories of educated, smart, and internet-savvy people get catfished or fooled or tricked online into giving complete strangers whom they've never met money, gifts, or even compromising pictures, all because someone was able to meet their emotional needs, or they were able to say, I love you, or somehow connect with them heart-to-heart virtually. I don't know if you remember a little over 20 years ago on May the 4th of 2000, the so-called I love you computer virus was released into the world by then 24-year-old Onel de Guzman from Manila. It was a virus that ended up infecting tens of millions of computers running the Windows operating system. It is estimated to have caused more than $8.5 billion in damage worldwide, and it took up to $15 billion to remove the virus from computer systems around the world. Some estimates are that 10% of all internet-connected computers in the world were affected. To protect themselves, the Pentagon, the CIA, the British Parliament, and most large corporations decided to completely shut down their mail servers. At that time, it was one of the world's most destructive computer-related disasters ever. The email subject line was simply, I love you. And there was an attachment there where if you open it, it infected your computer and sent out the same destructive email to those on your contact list. And the reason this virus spread so fast is that sociologists have pointed to the email virus's simple subject heading, I love you. And they noted that everyone wants to be loved or everyone is feeling that they need to be loved. And this simple yet effective virus appealed to that need for love and the thought that somehow someone would cheer me up to tell me that they loved me was enough for me to trust them to open this email, even though I didn't know this recipient, and to open up the file that contained this computer virus. This is a very clear example where just because someone says, I love you, it doesn't mean they have your best interest in mind. Now look with me at verses 7 to 10. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshar in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, 
as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. The Bible tells us that after a short period of time, and the 40 years probably refers to when King David was crowned king, that after a few years of this conspiracy brewing, that Absalom felt that the time was right for him to openly kick off his rebellion and coup. And he used the pious reason of a promise to God to get the permission of his father, King David, to go to Hebron. Notice in verse 10 that Absalom had stationed people throughout the land of the 12 tribes of Israel to declare him as the new king in Hebron, as if to show that with seeming consensus throughout the land, that which was a lie is perceived as true. Absalom is now king. If everyone is saying it, then it must be true. We have a new king. His name is Absalom, and he reigns in Hebron. Now look with me at verses 11 and 12. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilaw, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. The Bible tells us that in a deceptive move, Absalom invited 200 presumably prominent men in Jerusalem to follow him to Hebron. These men were clueless as to Absalom's deceptive plans. But this impressive show of force would help to perpetuate an image of credibility and truth. Absalom was even able to get one of King David's advisors to join him in this coup. Notice what is said in the last part of verse 12. The conspiracy grew strong because the people with Absalom increased in numbers. You see, a movement or a conspiracy will die out if there's no one to believe it or to champion its ideas and cause. But a movement or conspiracy will perpetuate, will continue to perpetuate if the numbers that believe in the cause continues to grow and gain in strength. As we talked about last week, there are people who believe that the earth is flat or that all birds aren't real but actually surveillance drones or that Australia isn't a real country. There are even some people who actually believe that key world leaders are shape-shifting lizard people out for world domination and it may have you shaking your heads in disbelief. But these ideas continue to propagate and carry on because there's an increasing number of people who believe this stuff. And when it reaches a certain threshold, they are no longer beliefs on the extreme fringe, but begin to work its way into mainstream conversation, and somehow the lies have become truth. Often, because we cannot physically verify something, and we don't trust those who can be trusted, and we don't trust the trusted sources, then we often buy into a conspiracy and into a falsehood when we see others believing it. So any attempts to discredit those wrong notions are often met with resistance because others, however few, believe the same thing. When our minds have been clouded or biased and we want to believe something to be true, we will look for someone, anyone, someone who may not even be qualified, but someone who can simply affirm our beliefs. So if you want to believe that the earth is flat, you are affirmed because you aren't the only one who believes this. There are others who believe that the earth is flat, and those others may not be astronauts or even credible scientists, 
And even the Bible teaches that the earth is spherical, but you believe that the earth is flat because others believe it as well. This is an important warning for us in the packaging of truth that number three, we need to recognize that simply because some people believe something to be true does not make it true. Recognize that simply because some people believe something to be true does not make it true. This means that as people whom God has given wisdom and a brain, we have a responsibility with God's help to wisely discern what is truth and what is not. Because if not, then we can then be so easily manipulated into lies packaged as truth simply because we follow the crowd. And if we allow this, then there is no telling how Satan can easily dupe us into his deceptions by only having some people believe his lies. In verse 11, we see that 200 people went with Absalom. Why didn't they speak up when the coup started? Why didn't they oppose Absalom? While we don't know the reasons, some of them perhaps could have been afraid. Others perhaps may not have opposed Absalom because they wanted to be right, meaning they didn't want people to think them foolish for following him blindly in the first place to Hebron. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be seen as people who are always right. My friends, this is another reason why people insist on something to be true even if it is clearly false, because they want to be right. Al Tompkins, an expert at Pointer Institute who teaches media literacy to senior citizens, says, human beings want to be right. And when they search for information, they do it with the intent of confirming what they already believe. It's called confirmation bias. It's always easier to take in information that you already believe, Tompkins says. It's much more difficult and requires a whole different level of intellectual and emotional maturity to take in information that is not advantageous to you. That's not something you currently believe. When someone feels the need to always be right, it can always shut down productive conversation and healthy debate. So many people have fallen prey to satirical websites that openly say they're promoting fake news and satire, including the Christian satirical website, The Babylon Bee that when they see a news article that is fake, but it confirms what they believe to be true, even though it's a lie, they will take joke news to be real news and true because they want to believe in what they hold to. And they will say, look, this website, which is a satire, affirms what I believe. It's so sad that people would rather be right than to discern for the truth. This desire to be right and correct, regardless of the refuting evidence, will lead people to look to the fringe and the extreme for just one article, just one video, just one doctor, just one scientist, just one pastor, just one so-called theologian, just one authority figure to validate what they believe so that they can say, see, I'm right. People will often look to the exception cases rather than the mainstream to bolster their belief because they simply want to be right. They'll look and say that the election was rigged because there were a few cases of voter fraud. But everyone knows that every election has some sort of fraud, but was there enough to overturn the results? Or they'll say, look at that small percentage of people who got vaccinated but still contracted the virus in what doctors call breakthrough cases. And they'll focus on that and say, well, guess what? Vaccines are ineffective. The focus on those exception cases 
is so that they can say, see, I'm right. So with this warning, we need to look at our hearts to see if we are humble enough to look for the truth, even if we are proven wrong, to not look at the exception cases, but to focus on the truth. This is a direct application of the Christian faith because so many are proud of the hard work they put into their lives, which they believe has brought success into their lives. And so they want to be judged based on their good works, not wanting to admit that they cannot be saved through their good works, but must be saved through Jesus dying for them. Or some don't want to accept Jesus because there's that one Christian businessman who was so unscrupulous, or that one Christian friend who was so selfish that I won't accept Christ because of the actions of one or some of his followers. My friends, that sort of thinking will end with you in hell forever because you have chosen not to accept the truth that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. And in the final judgment, God doesn't want to hear the excuses that you have because of the exceptions that you point to. He wants to know if you have placed your trust in Him or not. That is the truth of the matter. Now look at verses 13 to 14. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The Bible tells us that David got word that the hearts of the men of Israel were now with his son Absalom. And realizing that it was a lost cause for them, David decided to leave his beloved city of Jerusalem so that death and destruction would not befall the people of that city. I believe that David realized that perception and impressions are very difficult to change. Once a heart has settled on something, there's very little that can be done unless God works to change their hearts and opens their eyes to see what they believe to be true is actually a lie. This is a sad chapter of the story of the life of King David. And if you want to know what happens next, I encourage you to continue reading through 2 Samuel. But David does eventually return back to Jerusalem. But from this biblical account of what happened, one can easily see how a lie packaged as truth can easily win over the hearts of men and women. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be discerning and use wisdom to advocate only for what is truth and to cut through the bias and propaganda we need to, number one, realize that diversions are often used to draw our attention away from the internal flaws to focus on superficial virtues. And number two, we need to understand that not everyone who pretends to be your friend, validates your feelings, or empathetically affirms your concerns has your best interest at heart. And number three, recognize that simply because some people believe something to be true does not make it true. Again, my friends, remember what the Bible warns us of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Lies packaged as truth will win over the hearts and minds of men and women as we get closer to the coming of Christ. And so, as Christians, we must use wisdom and discernment 
when you read an article, look at a website, look at a YouTube video, find out its political leanings, look to see who's sponsoring the video, find out what agenda, beliefs, and convictions that person or that organization holds to. When I'm asked to comment on a certain theological or biblical author or commentary or article or video, I often first find out what is the theological position of that person or organization, what beliefs do they hold to, because it will affect their interpretation and their presentation. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have the real truth of Christ to share to the world. And this truth is not hidden, but revealed to the entire world to examine There is no sleight of hand. There is no smokescreen. There's no diversion. All are welcome to come and see what happened on the cross when Jesus died for the sins of mankind. All are welcome to examine His life, the life He lived here on earth, to see that Jesus is the Son of God, God Himself, the Messiah, who has come to save mankind. All are welcome to examine the evidence of the empty tomb of the resurrected Savior. And Jesus doesn't have to pretend to be our friend. He is our true friend with our best interest at heart. How do we know? John chapter 15 verse 3 tells us, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Jesus did just that, my friends. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He walked the path of Calvary to show us just how much he loved us and how He wanted to be our friend for our best interests, because it was to save us and to give us eternal life. And even if other people don't believe in Jesus, and some Christians do not live up to the principles of the Scripture, look to the words of Jesus, who clearly and truthfully says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives His life for the sheep. And then in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says again very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, my friends, when Jesus says, I love you, he meant it, and he stretched out his hand, and he died on the cross, and he says, I love you this much, and he died for each one of us. Indeed, the simple, unbiased truth from the Lord for all the world is this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a truth we can bank on. That is the truth whose only agenda is for us to be saved. And it comes from a loving God who desires our best. May each of us navigate with wisdom to cut through the bias and propaganda that this world offers to be able to discern truth, especially the truth that life is short, hell is real, and Jesus alone saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for helping us to discern truth, to cut through the bias and the propaganda that a world and satanic agenda has often used to mask lies to be truth. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give each of us wisdom and discernment of heart to not be so naive and gullible, but with the wisdom of Scripture and us putting in the effort to research 
and to look into the Scriptures and to trust trusted sources that You have placed into our lives that we would live out truth, that we would love truth, that we would hold truth to high regard. Father, thank You for the truth of Jesus Christ, truth of salvation through Him alone. For that, we can have hope and have eternal life. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. Bless each who have listened to this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.